0: Ellie and Carrie Everett and their uh, four children have been with us now. Uh, being the Ruf Campus Minister at Mercer, uh, going on their fourth into uh, their fourth year of ministry. But uh, Elliot preaches two to three times a year here. He's a gifted preacher and singer and everything. You're not going to sing, are you? Like that? Yeah, okay. But uh, it's it's a treat to have you back, Elliot. Thank you. I I did not approve of that. Uh, uh, It's always such a blessing uh, and privilege to be able to stand before you and open God's Word, and I'm especially um, uh, excited uh, at the privilege of considering with you uh, the truth, the glorious truth that in Christ we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God, and that's what I want to consider with you this morning, and as we do that, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, uh, perhaps a familiar chapter of the Bible to you, and perhaps maybe in a familiar passage as we look at Romans chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 12, if you would give your ears and your hearts to the reading of God's Word. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Francis Schaeffer had a book that he entitled, How Should We Then Live? And Paul gives his own version of his answer to that question here in Romans 8, given all the glorious truths of the gospel and justification by faith in Christ that Paul has uh, gone into in depth at earlier parts of this letter. He now, in Romans 8, wants to answer that question, How Then Should We Live? And to some, the whole of Romans chapter 8, his answer is that we should live by the Spirit. This is what life by and in the Spirit looks like. And specifically, uh, life in the Spirit means a lot of things that we could look into, but one thing at least that we know as we look at these verses is that life in the Spirit, living by the Spirit, is that we should live according to the glorious truth of what we are. And that is children of God, adopted, full children of God. So that's what I want to look at you. I want to see, uh, look at with you, and I want to see four things with you, four things that I I borrow from John Stott and his wonderful commentary uh, on Romans. But the first is this if you look at verses 12 through 14, and, and 14 specifically. How should the children of God live? How do they live? And the first thing he says for us there in verse 14 is that the children of God are led by the Spirit. The children of God are led by the Spirit. This is the overarching point. It's the one that if we miss this one, we don't really understand the rest of what he's saying. Four times in these verses, Paul talks about our being sons or our being adopted. And he also directly Connects that truth four times with being or having or having received the spirit. They're they're directly connected. The answer to every question of how do we live as children of God is connected to the Holy Spirit. If you look through 12, verses 12 through 14 there, um, we're debtors. We're obligated to live according to the Spirit. We're not debtors, we're not obligated to the flesh. To live according to the flesh. If you live by the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, you will live. This is the way of life. This is the way unto life as a child of God is by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. So the natural question, one that I think we need to ask and answer before we move on, is how then do you get that Spirit Where does the Spirit come from? How do we get this? Well, this is exactly the question that Jesus answers for Nicodemus in John chapter 3, if you're familiar with that interchange. But what's funny is Nicodemus doesn't even ask the question, but it's the one that Jesus points him to. You remember what Jesus says to Nicodemus there in John chapter 3? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which, of, what, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. If you remember, if you're familiar with this interchange, it completely blows Nicodemus' mind. One, he's not even asking that question. But two, he begins to think okay, what? So what am I supposed to do? A grown man, I'm supposed to enter the womb a second time? And that's what proves he doesn't even get what Jesus is trying to say. Jesus is trying to say, you have as much to do with your second birth as you did with your first. You can't do anything. And so it is with the child of God who is led by the Spirit. You can't do anything to be led by the Spirit to receive the Spirit. You can't do anything to be a child of God. This is what the whole image of adoption implies. That there's something that is true of us apart from the Spirit. There's something that we don't have without the Spirit. And then when we get the Spirit, when we receive the Spirit, there's now something new that's true of us. But, and because we have received the Spirit... And because we've received the Spirit, we're led by the Spirit, because we've received this adoption, it does mean you can now do something. You can live. You can live unto righteousness and holiness. You can die to sin by the Spirit. We have to get this if we're going to get anything else. St. Ferguson says it this way. He says, holiness is the way of life in the family of God. But it is not, nor can it be, the way into the family of God. We are led by the Spirit from first to last and everywhere in between because we're children of God. second thing Paul points us to here, specifically in verse 15, is that the children of God have been set free. The children of God have been set free. Look at what he says here in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. This is a distinction uh, in Galatians 4. He uses the same distinction. We're not slaves. We're sons. If we've received the gospel, if we've believed the gospel, if we've received the spirit, we are no longer slaves. We've been set free free because the spirit we receive is not slavery, but adoption. The first thing to understanding that is to understand the spirit of adoption is to understand the analogy from Paul's point of view of adoption. It was a little different in his day than, than maybe we think of it. To be a, an adopted son in Paul's day was to be, a, was to be deliberately chosen by an adoptive father to perpetuate his name and to carry on his estate through full inheritance. Okay? It was, um, it was a great honor. It was a great honor, but it also carried great responsibility to do honor to that father that had given you his name. And it, the son would legally, existentially, practically, would be in no way, no degree in, more inferior um, than a natural-born son. He actually might enjoy more affection and would be actually more likely to imitate the Father because of this intentional adoption. And so Paul has that image in mind, and he brings up that image, and he says that's exactly the same thing that we have with God. The exact same thing. And he contrasts it with a spirit of slavery so that we do not fall back into fear. That we don't fall back into fear. How do we understand that? Well, the first is understanding what's the difference between a slave and a son. This is the key. What is the difference between a slave and a son? Well, a slave or a servant or a hired hand relates to the father based on his performance and his record. That's what defines the relationship. That's what affects the relationship. That's what can uh, change the status of the relationship is his performance or his record, whether he measures up. But a son... A son, that relationship is wholly founded and defined on the objective truth of his identity as a son. He may fear displeasing the father, but he cannot fear a change in the status of the relationship. He cannot fear a change in his identity based on what he's done. Because he's a son. This image of fear in relating in fear. I'm reminded of a story I came across over uh, over, over the Christmas season. Um, and I don't know, where, you know I don't want to let the cat out of the bag for anyone, but I, I don't know about you, but I think we could all agree that no matter what, our children are getting presents, right? Especially if they have grandparents, right? Um, they're getting presents, okay? Uh, well, there's a, apparently a, a certain game that's, uh, that's gained uh, popularity recently just kind of playing uh, along the lines of he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, um, just to kind of reinforce that, I guess, as Christmas Day approaches. Uh, And this news, this is a news story, uh, where a little girl had apparently broken one of the cardinal rules of this game, that if you break it, Christmas is over. Uh, There will be no Christmas. Uh, And her mother was taking a nap when this happened, and so she did the only sensible thing. She called 911 to tell them that Christmas was over. Um, and so the mother, as the news... This is a news story, by the way. Um, as the story goes, uh, the mother wakes up from her nap to find her mortified child trying to shoo a cop off the front porch, trying to convince him that he doesn't need to come inside. Right? She realizes the gravity uh, of what she had done in calling 911. That reaction right, was a reaction wholly based in fear, in fear that this little girl had ruined it all, right? Do you remember the return of the prodigal son in the familiar parable in Luke chapter 15? Uh, We all remember what the prodigal son did, right? Demands his inheritance. He goes away, squanders all of it. He's an utter disgrace. To the family, he brings great shame to his family. But as Jesus tells the parable, we're told that in his desperate state, he came to his senses. He realized what he'd done. He realizes that he fully deserves everything that he's gotten. Right, and um, but he tells himself. He tells himself, "Even my father's hired hands are fed." And so he determines, he determines to himself, I'm going to return to my father. And he practices this speech in his head. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired hands. Right, And he's just stating the truth. He's stating the truth. Because of what he's done, he's not worthy. He's not. He's he's greatly uh, disgraced his father and his family. And that's the tension that we all live in as children of God that we're not worthy. Because we still fail, we still sin, we're still selfish, we still outright rebel sometimes. And we have that moment of realization that I- I'm not worthy of this. But that, that's the beauty of the truth and of the image of adoption that Paul points us to. You're not worthy, no. But that's what you've received. It's what's been bestowed on you. And because it's been bestowed on you, it is true. So without the Spirit, without conversion, without regeneration, without new birth, without a new heart, we are slaves to fear. It's the only option because the only relationship to God that's possible for us apart from the Spirit is to relate to Him as a judge. And not only to relate to Him as a judge, but a judge to whom we are indebted to. And that's how the prodigal returns to his father with that debt in mind. But do you remember the return of the prodigal, right? He gets to his father and he begins to start his speech, but the father won't even let him finish it. Before he can even finish that speech that he rehearsed, the father is on him. He's robing him, he's ringing him, and he's feasting him. This, my son, was dead, and now he's alive. And if you're paying attention to the story, and if you're trying to apply that to yourself and your relationship with God, you can't help but ask the question, how can that be? How can that be? And Charles Wesley um, actually takes that very question up in his familiar hymn, And Can It Be? And this is how a couple of verses of that hymn go. This is what Wesley writes. He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. And he ends it with this. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. You can't help but ask there, who would dare approach the throne of the Maker and judge of the universe and claim a crown. His children. His children would. We've been set free because we've been made children. This leads us to number three. As Paul says here at the end of verse 15 and end of verse 16, the children of God cry, Abba, Father. I love this. Children of God cry, Abba, Father. Abba is a an Aramaic term. It's not Greek that Paul was writing in. Um, Aramaic, common language. Jesus spoke it. Um, it's first used in the Bible toward God by Jesus Himself. It's an everyday word. It's a common word. No religious Jew would have dared address God with that word, but that's how Jesus did. And it's also how he taught his disciples to pray, right? Our Father who art in heaven. We name God. We call to God. We talk to God. We can cry to God in the same exact way, with the same word on our lips, as the eternally begotten Son of God. We cry, Abba. We can exclaim, Abba, like a little child who greets his father when he returns home from work at the end of the day. Abba. Or like a child in pain. We can cry out, Abba. And the beautiful part of it is that we know that he hears us. We know that he hears us, which leads to another question. How do we know that? Okay, it's one thing to say, like, we can do it, but how do we know that, that he hears us? You know when Jesus cries, Abba? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, remove this cup from me. The Father didn't remove the cup. You know when Jesus doesn't say, Abba? On the cross. When instead we hear him say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we know that when we cry, Abba, we know that he hears us as his children. Why? Because on that day, on that cross, he gave up his only son so that it would be true. So that we would know that there is nothing that bars the way. That he hears that day when the eternally begotten Son of God faced not his Father, but he faced the Judge in our stead. We sang, praise my soul, the King of Heaven, and we sang, Father-like, he tends and spares us and rescues us from all our foes. How is that true? Because he did not spare his only Son. Because he did not rescue his son from all of his foes. You remember Jesus was mocked while he hung on the cross for that very fact. If you're the son of God, why don't you come down? But because that is true, we know that God is our father. And that we are his children and that we can call on him. And he hears There's a Puritan writer who said, if you want to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. I hate that quote because it's so true. If you want to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. Think about this. At any point, at any moment, on any day, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what is going on, you may have no other words that come to mind except Father. And you know that He hears you. But he doesn't hear you as some God who needs to be roused or appeased in order to answer. He he hears it as a father ready and able and willing to answer. Again, me and Michael didn't plan it like this, but it worked out well. Uh, Praise my soul, the King of Heaven. That was written uh, by Henry Light. And that's what's so interesting about that line in verse 3. Father-like, he tends and spares us. You know an interesting fact about Henry Light is he had a wretched father. His father abdicated his responsibility to be a loving father. His parents separated when he was young and so his father put him in boarding school and then sometime after that he married another and started a new family and when he would write to his son he would not sign his letters your father, he signed them your uncle. Yet, in all of Light's hymns The image of God as Father is a warm and comforting one. My friend and fellow campus minister at Belmont, Kevin Twitt, remarks on this and says this. He says, that shows forth the power of the gospel to deconstruct and reconstruct even something so simple as what it means to have a father. Because we can't escape the fact father-like, some of us don't have good experiences with that idea at all. I want to speak to children or teenagers. This is true of all of us who have relationships with our parents, but especially if you live with your parents right now, I want you to hear this. Have you ever thought about the fact that God gives from Mount Sinai Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments? He gives a lot of other stuff, but there's the Ten Commandments that that have stood the test of time. Right? Even if you're not a Christian, you know something about the Ten Commandments. And right in the middle of the Ten Commandments, God wants to put something about honoring your father and your mother. And then you take Paul Paul explicitly addresses obeying or disobeying your parents in multiple number of his letters Jesus takes up the subject as well and I think this is if we connect that with this idea of adoption and who God is and what a father he is to us I think this is telling us something the way that you relate to your parents reflects your heart's disposition toward your heavenly father it does doesn't mean that our relationships with our parents is not sometimes hard. It doesn't mean that we who are parents are perfect or ever free from blame. It doesn't mean that having bad or abusive or absentee parents is something just okay you should just move on from, but it does mean that everything that we could have ever wanted or needed in parents, especially in light of their shortcomings, we have in God the Heavenly Father. Because the gospel is true. (laughs) And that heals us. It heals us. Final thing I want to look at with you, and I wish we had so much more time just to explore this one, but the last thing Paul says to us here in verse 17 is that the children of God are heirs with Christ. We should live in the light of the knowledge of the truth that we are heirs of God with Christ. Imagine, I, I can't recall who this illustration was original to, but I've heard it uh, plenty of times. Imagine if I told you that I had paid your bill. Right? You'd, you'd be immediately grateful, but you would also kind of wonder what bill I paid, right? If I paid for your coffee this morning... Um, You might send me a thank you note. That that was sweet of you. That was kind. Well, what if I had paid your mortgage? That would change your life. (laughs) That would change your whole disposition. That would change the way that you got out of bed in the morning. Paul, Scripture, God, is telling us that we are His children and in Christ, indwelt by His Spirit, we are Heirs of God. The one who owns a, the cattle on a thousand hills. The one who hung the stars one by one and calls them each by name. We are heirs. But the interesting qualification here that Paul gives in verse 17 is provided that we suffer with them. It's Jesus himself to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and then enter his glory? Luke chapter 9, he tells the 12, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. We've barely begun to scratch the surface of this this morning. But even scratching the surface, we see that the life of the child of God is amazing, it is beautiful, it is joyous, and it leads to glory. But the pathway of the child of God is marked by suffering. It's defined by putting parts of our old selves to death. Dying to ourselves, crucifying things that used to be true of us, dying to sin. And it's why we need this truth of our adoption that we need to sing it, we need to preach it, we need to cling to it, that we're children of the living God, because the pains and the brokenness and the disappointments of this life will do anything and everything to convince you otherwise. That's it. You know, in God's providence, you didn't plan it necessarily this way, but in God's providence, tomorrow at 12 p.m., our family will go to court and we will finalize the adoption of our fourth child. Uh, he has been with us for over a year, uh, placed in our home by Bibb County Defects, practically being with us for over a year, practically in every way, an Everett. Loves his mama like all our children have. He kind of likes me like all my children have, right? But tomorrow, fully and legally, he will be no different in any way than our other three children. But here's the thing, though, and I think it's worth noting, is that there is no escaping one glaring fact, and that is that he will grow up to be a black man with a white family in the American South. There's no denying that fact, and there's no doubt that he is going to struggle with his identity as my son because of that. Look, our teenagers struggle with their identity as our children. So how much more will he? You know, and as his father, I love him. As his father, I will love him. I will tell him. I will hug him. I will discipline him. I will care for him. Not one ounce different than any of my other children. I will disappoint him. I will lose my temper with him. I will be selfish in the same ways that I do each of my other children. But I will never know what it is like to be a black man in America. I don't know what that's like. And this is why I want, I bring that up because I want you to see the beauty of what Paul and the rest of scripture says. That we are children of God. We are heirs with God with Christ. We are co-heirs, equal heirs with Christ. We are sons and daughters of God in each and every way the same as Jesus Christ himself. How do we know that? I take you back to the parable of the prodigal son. There's that great cliffhanger at the end of that parable, you remember. At the end of the parable, the elder brother is still on the outside. At the beginning of the parable, the family is broken apart because of the younger son. At the end of the family, they're broken because of the elder son. The elder son hates his younger brother. He doesn't want to let him back in. He hates his father for welcoming, welcoming, welcoming him back in the way that he did. And in the parable, it's true that the father welcomes the younger back. It's the father who robes the younger son, who rings him, who feasts him. But what is true, regardless of whether the elder son accepts it, what is the only way that the younger son is welcomed back into the family? At the expense of the elder brother. It's the only way. So you see, the beauty of our story, of our adoption, is that our elder brother knew exactly what it was going to cost. And as the author of Hebrews tells us, who for the joy that was set before him, that's us. He endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father just saying of it, how great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. How then should we live as children of the living God? Let's pray. Father, it amazes us that we can even call you that. But you have made us your children. You have called us your children. You have called us to yourself and you knew what it would take and you spared no cost as you did not spare your only son. Father, would we know this truth today? would it change us would it bring us into your glory we pray in our savior's name amen if you take your-